Welcome to Project Botany's Hall of Fame. Here, we showcase the people that have changed the field of botany and our lives. People like Agnes Arbor, the plant morphologist, Luther Burbank, the plant wizard, and Norman Borlaug, the man who saved the world. In the mid-1800s, everyone was worried about this thing called a Malthusian collapse. The idea was our human population would outstrip the resources and resource production the Earth could handle, and if nothing was done, we would reach a tipping point as a population and humanity collapse. Luckily, some changes were made. Better farming practices like using seed drills to plant neat lines, or plows to soften and make the soil more arable. This moved the hands back on humanity's alarm clock, but in the 1940s, the alarm was getting closer and closer. This is where Norman Borlaug comes in. With a PhD in plant pathology, or the study of plant diseases and pests, he began his career working for DuPont, developing new pesticides and bactericides. When World War II started, he tr tried to enlist in the war effort, but was turned away and asked to continue his work at DuPont, developing a glue that wouldn't be dissolved by salt water. This was crucial for the war efforts, especially in the Pacific theater of World War II. In 1944, he was asked by the Rockefeller Foundation to go to Mexico and work on breeding a new strain of wheat. Before he could accept the offer, DuPont offered to double his pay if he stayed. Just be glad Norman Borlaug decided to work for the Rockefeller Foundation. While in Mexico, Borlaug set to breeding his wheat in a very unique way. His first planting site was in Chapingo, near the southern end of Mexico. In an attempt to double how much wheat he could breed in a year, he wanted to plant wheat in a more northern location called the Yaqui Valley, which was lower in altitude and separated from the other site by 7,000 miles and 8,500 feet in altitude. This difference allowed him to grow two crops of wheat each year. This plan, however, was almost shot down by Borlaug's boss, George Harar. At the time, Harar believed in a now disproved theory of agronomy that stated seeds needed a resting period between harvest and sowing to store up more energy. Harar vetoed the idea of having two sites, and Borlaug resigned. Luckily, a man named Elvin Stakem was visiting the project and mediated between the two. He convinced Borlaug to keep working and Harar to allow Borlaug to double his wheat season. This process of double wheat season is the gift that just keeps giving. Because wheat is being bred in two different places, it starts to adapt to the two different climates at the same time. This is called photoperiodism. Borlaug describes it the best. He says, as it worked out, in the north, we were planting when the days were getting shorter, at low elevation and high temperature. Then, we'd take the seed from the best plant south and plant it at high elevation, when the days were getting longer and there was lots of rain. Soon, we'd have varieties that fit the whole range of conditions. That wasn't supposed to happen by the books. The next plan for Borlaug's breeding program was to work out some disease resistance. He planned to do this by backcrossing. This is the process of taking a hybrid that has a resistance you want and breeding it back with the first parent plant. This means the offspring is going to have all the benefits of the hybrid and the parent. Next was to breed for dwarfing. The breeds of wheat Borlaug was using at the time were very tall and increasing grain yield would cause the stalks to fall over. This is called lodging. To get around this, Borlaug obtained a strain of wheat from Japan that was bred to be dwarfed. With some breeding, he was able to get his strains of wheat that were disease-resistant and able to grow in a variety of conditions 
to become dwarfed. But what did all this mean? Well, it meant that countries that grew wheat and relied on it now had a breed of wheat that could survive better and produce more. Between 1950 and the early 2000s, grain production exploded. The predictions of mass starvation were averted. Countries like Pakistan and India were slotted to collapse, but became self-sufficient shortly after breeding programs in both countries led to better yield. However, all of this came at a cost and with a warning. The use of herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers were leading to huge increases in yield, but overuse and misuse led to issues with runoff and overspraying of harmful chemicals. Although practices are starting to change in our time, major progress needs to be made. The final warning was issued by Borlaug in his Nobel acceptance speech. He said, Obviously, I am personally honored beyond all dreams by my election, but the obligations imposed by the honor are far greater than the honor itself both as concerns me personally and also the army of hungry fighters in which I voluntarily enlist a quarter of a century ago for a lifetime term. I am acutely conscious of the fact that I am but one member of a vast army, and so I want to share not only the present honor, but also the future obligation with all my companions in arms, for the Green Revolution has not yet been won. It is true that the tide of the battle against hunger has changed for the better during the past three years, but the tides have a way of flowing and then ebbing again. We may be at high tide now, but ebb tide could soon set in if we become complacent and relax our efforts. For we are dealing with two opposing forces, the scientific power of food production and the biological power of human reproduction. Norman Borlaug's words are never more true than now. The Green Revolution never ended. We are still in the midst of it and are fighting daily to make sure there is enough food and that it gets to the people that need it. Botanists, geneticists, and pathologists all over the world are making sure we always stay ahead of the ebbs and flows of the tide of hunger. So next time you are voting, donating, or looking for a book to read at the library, look at what is being done about food and bettering agriculture. You never know what you'll find. Don't forget, you can reach out to me at projectbotanypodcast at gmail.com with questions or ideas on how to make the show better. You can find Project Botany on Facebook and Twitter and at the website projectbotany.com. And don't forget to leave a rating and review where you can and share this podcast with someone. And don't forget to tune in next week for another episode of Project Botany.